Would you join me in a word of prayer before we dig into God's Word this morning? O Lord, we confess that Your law is perfect, converting the soul. We confess that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Lord, Your statutes are right, rejoicing the heart. Your commandments are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Lord, Your judgments are true and righteous altogether. They are more to be desired than gold. They are sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. Lord, we confess that by them Your servant is warned and in keeping them there is great reward. So Lord, would, would You allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart to be acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, my Redeemer. Help us as we study Your Word. Holy Spirit, work in hearts that we might see Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning examining and searching God's Word. Since 2003, Merriam-Webster has identified a Word of the Year. This word tends to be one that's heavily searched throughout the year and often helps us see big things that are going on in society that year. For example, I bet you could probably guess what the word of the year was in 2020. Pandemic. That's the big thing that was going on in 2020. Or the word in 2021. Vaccine. Again, one of the big things that was taking place in the year 2021. In 2008, the word of the year was bailout. Many of you may remember the financial recession of 2008 and the massive government bailouts that were given to large corporations. The word of the year often captures the prevailing winds of society. Well, as 2023 winds down, Merriam-Webster has named 2023's word of the year to be authentic. Authentic. Merriam-Webster defines authentic as not false or imitation. Like an authentic Gucci handbag. An authentic Italian restaurant. We might use words like real or genuine to describe this, this idea. In our day, everyone is seeking authenticity. They're seeking authenticity, though, within themselves. They want to be real or they want to channel their authentic voice. In our text this morning in Proverbs 3 and throughout the book of Proverbs, we see authentic wisdom. This is not wisdom that we find inside of ourselves. This is wisdom that is true and real and genuine from God. God is the source of this wisdom. James describes godly wisdom in James chapter 3, verse 17. He says, The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. That's godly wisdom. Any other kind of wisdom could not be more different. Earthly wisdom, human wisdom, conventional wisdom... James goes on to describe in that same passage, the wisdom of this world is earthly, sensual, and demonic. 
Well, we're not in James. We're in Proverbs. And in Proverbs 1 through 9, in those first nine chapters, the writer Solomon is all about trying to exhort his son to pursue true wisdom and avoid folly. He does. He argues for this by personifying true wisdom and folly as two ladies. Wisdom is a virtuous and affluent woman. She has much to offer. She, she cries aloud in the streets, compelling the simple to come and learn her ways. But Lady Folly is also personified. She is personified as an immoral and ignorant woman. The end of going towards her is death. And among those descriptions are exhortations of what authentic wisdom looks like in practice. Before we begin to consider wisdom in Proverbs 3, we need to understand what authentic wisdom is and why it's critical for us. This is not a, uh, something that we can take or leave. In the book of Proverbs, we find the word wisdom used 54 times. They are, uh, these 54 times are two different Hebrew words, and they carry the idea of skill or understanding as it pertains to God and others. So, so think, of, think of it with me, if you would, as wisdom is kind of this thing in the middle. How do I relate to God rightly? How do I interact with God? Well, how, how do I relate to others? And how do I kind of get God and life working together, that's wisdom. It's skill. It's knowledge in action. One person defines it as how to live in God's universe in the fear of the Almighty. How to live in the here and now in light of God. Here's the working definition of wisdom that we'll use for this morning. Wisdom is reverencing God for who He is understanding who I am, and skillfully living in the reality of who I am in Him. Wisdom is reverencing God for who He is, understanding who I am, and skillfully living in the reality of who I am in Him. So if that's what wisdom is, if that's what authentic wisdom is, Proverbs chapter 3 is going to help us understand what it means to have authentic wisdom. Follow along as I begin reading in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1. Solomon writes, My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Happy is the man who finds wisdom, and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver, and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies, and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. 
Length of days is in her right hand, in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. This is the word of God. And so from this text, from Proverbs 3, 1 to 18, two points for us to consider this morning. We will see wisdom practiced and wisdom valued. Wisdom practiced and wisdom valued. First, wisdom practiced. In these first 12 verses of Proverbs chapter 3, we see wisdom practiced. These verses help us see the connection between the idea of wisdom from Proverbs 2 and the practice of wisdom. It's one thing to say, be wise. It's another thing to illustrate that and amplify that and build that out so that you don't just have this abstract idea of, okay, I need to be wise. How do I be wise? Proverbs chapter 3 helps us answer that question. Because wisdom by definition is applied in action. It's not an abstract thing. That's knowledge. But there's a problem because notice in the first 12 verses, the word wisdom doesn't show up. Where is wisdom in Proverbs chapter 3, 1 through 12. Well, look in verse 1. My son, do not forget my law. Let your heart keep my commandments. This is a call for Solomon's son to go back to something that has already been said. Immediately, it goes back to chapter 2. In chapter 2, we find exhortations over and over again to wisdom. Proverbs 2, 2. Incline your ear to wisdom. Apply your heart to understanding. Verse 5, you'll understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk uprightly. So my son, don't forget those things that I just said in Proverbs 2. Let your heart keep my commands. Wisdom is practiced in these first 12 verses. There's three truths in these 12 verses that we see as wisdom is practiced. In verses 1 through 4, we see that a wise person remembers God. A wise person remembers God. Notice the emphasis in these first four verses, verses 1 through 4, on the internal complexion of the wise person. Let your heart keep my commands. Verse 3, bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. The son is exhorted to have his heart keep God's commandments. He's to emblazon mercy and truth on the table of his heart. He's supposed to bind it around his neck. The wise person remembers God. Because in these commands, these are not just uh, family traditions and norms. He's not saying, now remember, son, when you come in, when you leave a room, make sure you turn the lights out. This is not that level of instruction. There is a parallel in these commands with Deuteronomy 6, where God is commanding his people to do these same things. Don't forget my law. Don't let mercy and truth forsake you. And he commands his people to bind them about their necks, to write them on the table of their heart. The commands that Solomon is exhorting his son to keep 
are more than just family preferences or traditions. They are God's commands. And by following these commands, they lead to godly wisdom. But in these verses, we see an anticipation of the Son forgetting the commandments. Don't forget is the first command in chapter 3, verse 1. Let not these things be forsaken by you. Again, there's overtones of Deuteronomy 6. As God is teaching and commanding His people, He warns them, don't forget my commandments. It's common for us to forget, isn't it? Think of what's taking place right now, kids, with the Christmas presents that you just got this past Monday. You're playing with them like crazy. What will happen in a few months' time? You'll forget about them. You'll be concerned with some new toy, some new thing that you have received, and the toys that you were so excited about at Christmas time, you will completely forget about. Proverbs 2 is full of exhortation from Solomon to his son concerning wisdom. And Solomon is concerned that his son will become complacent with wisdom, that he will stop pursuing wisdom. And when he does those things, he will become a fool. Solomon doesn't want his son to become a fool. He wants him to pursue godly wisdom. Therefore, Proverbs 3 begins with this caution to not forget the teaching and commands the father is giving to his son. But one of the remarkable things in these first four verses are the two blessings. Look in verse 2. What is the blessing that is to be had if the son remembers what the father has taught him? For length of days and long life and peace, they will add to you. If you do this, does this mean you're going to live to be 100? Are you, are you going to be like Methuselah and start pushing 900 plus years if you pursue and have godly wisdom? Not necessarily. This, this passage doesn't necessarily refer to living a literally long life, but rather a whole, healthy, and peaceful life. The culture of the day equated long life with being pleasing to God. Whether you lived 30 years or 80 years, to live a long life was a life that was pleasing to God. In other words, observing these exhortations to godly wisdom provides harmony and wholeness for the person who keeps and lives by them. Internally, this, the son experiences wholeness and peace. The person who is seeking godly wisdom experiences wholeness and peace. But exercising wisdom doesn't just have internal consequences and benefits. Look in verse 4. Verse 4, we see that the blessing of binding mercy and truth around your neck, writing these things on the tablet of your heart, you find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. This refers to the fact that others will observe the competency and wisdom of the son. They're going to look at him and say, man, he really has his act together. The peace and wholeness of the son will be seen by others and he will be looked on favorably. He'll have a good reputation by all who observe him. This favor isn't just constrained to his immediate life only, but even to the final day when he stands before God, that he will find high esteem in the sight of God and man. Well, a question arises from considering these blessings in verses 2 and 4. Does, 
do passages like this in the Bible teach that we can earn favor with God? It seems like the equation is pretty simple. You do this, you get this. Does this passage mean we can earn favor with God? No. No more than an obedient child earns favor with his parents. The child delights his parents. He opens the avenue for favor to be poured out. He does not earn that favor. The child's obedience doesn't make him more or less a child of his parents. If you disobey mom and dad kids, you don't become 90% their kids. You're 100% their kids regardless. There's no status for you to earn in the sight of God. It allows the relationship to thrive more. Look again at how verse 1 starts. My son, do not forget my law. Solomon is not presupposing that his son is not his son if he forgets the law. If he doesn't do these things. My son is my son is my son. So these verses do not teach that we can earn favor with God. Instead, they point to blessing that is to be had by following God. You are His child. You are pursuing godly wisdom. There's blessings in obeying God. Not only does a wise person remember God, secondly, as we see wisdom exercised, we see a wise person trusts God. A wise person trusts God. We see this in verses 5 through 8. In these four verses, the structure of the commands changes a little bit. In verses 1 through 4, if you look back real quickly, you see a pattern of the commands. Verse 1, do not forget. There's a negative command. And let your heart keep my commandments. There's a positive command. Verse 3, there's a negative command. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. A positive command. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. But look in verse 5. In verse 5, it starts with a positive command. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And then there's a negative command. And lean not on your own understanding. Verse 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Negative command. Positive command, fear the Lord and depart from evil. So we have positive, negative, negative, positive as as the commands go in verses 5 and 7. This is significant because it marks a a shift that these are the central verses of this passage. In verses 1 through 12, 1 through 4 is a section, 5 through 8 is a section, and we're going to come to 9 through 12. 5 through 8 is the mountaintop. 1 through 4, look up to it. 9 through 12, reflect back on it. There is important things for us to see in verses 5 through 8. Specifically, the two positive commands. These are the things the Father wants His Son to remember. First, in verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Everything that you are, not just that beating thing in your chest. Trust in the Lord with everything that you are. And, verse 7, fear the Lord and depart from evil. These are the two top priorities throughout Proverbs. And God wants you to have them at the forefront of your mind. Solomon wants his son to have them at the forefront of his mind. But this morning, God wants you to have them at the forefront of your mind. These are priorities. These are God's commands to you and I. These are not suggestions. He doesn't say, hey, it would be really nice if. 
He commands you, trust in the Lord with all your heart. He commands you to fear Him and depart from evil. God wants you to trust in Him and depart from evil, whether you're nursing a baby, working on a job site, waiting at the doctor's office, streaming a show, or working around the house. God wants you to trust in Him, fear Him, and depart from evil. Kids and teens, God wants you to trust Him and depart from evil when you're texting or talking with your friends. He wants you to trust Him and depart from evil when you're studying for a big test. He wants you to trust Him and depart from evil when you're playing video games or when you're doing chores around the house. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. So whether the events of tomorrow are predictable or unpredictable, we are commanded here to trust in God completely and depart from evil. Are those priorities that you and I have at the top of our list each day? When you wake up in the morning, is the first thing at the top of your to-do list to trust in the Lord with all your heart? To fear Him and depart from evil? Are those even on the list? Brother and sister in Christ, these are things that shouldn't just be on the list. They should be at the top of the list. Too often we are inclined to lean on our own understanding. Too often we are inclined to be wise in our own eyes. But here Solomon exhorts his son to not be those things. To trust in the Lord. To fear the Lord. To depart from evil. How fervently do you trust God? Imagine with me following scenario. A, a traveler in the 1700s tries to cross a river one winter's day. It's frozen over. It's a cold, wintry day as he travels along. He doesn't know how thick the ice is. And so what does he do? He gets down on all fours and he begins inching across the river, feeling for weak spots on the ice because the last thing he wants to do is fall through the ice. And as he creeps and crawls along the river, he hears a noise behind him and he looks and there's a four-horse wagon being drawn across the river. Does the man have any cause to be afraid of the ice in the river? No, here this wagon comes and it cruises across the river. There's no issues because the driver of that wagon lives in the area. He knows how thick the ice is. He trusts completely the thickness of the ice. He doesn't hop off the horses and inspect the river. He just goes across the river. Too many Christians are like the man down on all fours, creeping along way too cautious. Their trust in the Lord wavers. It's uncertain. They're not sure if they trust God, if He will support them. Then along comes a wholehearted Christian and he changes the tone for everyone around. Solomon is calling his son. God is calling you and I this morning to trust in Him totally in complete reliance. What does it look like to completely trust God? I was trying to think of, of word pictures, images that we know in our world that express this idea of complete trust. Trusting God looks like someone sitting down in a chair with no regard to the structural integrity of the legs or the seat. When you sit down in your dining room chair for lunch this afternoon, 
Do you expect it to hold you? You assume that it's going to hold you. When was the last time you sat down at the table for dinner and you got down on your knees and you inspected the structural integrity of the chair that you're about to sit in? We probably have not done that because we trust completely that that chair will hold us. Trusting God looks like someone pressing the start button on their car and fully expecting the car to turn on. You put your foot on the brake and you hit the start button fully expecting what to happen. The car to turn over and for the engine to turn on. Or you put the key in the ignition and you turn and what do you expect? You do not expect to hear some outlandishly loud, crazy noise, a grating sound, or even worse, nothing. You expect the engine to fire up, the car to turn on, because you completely trust that it will do so. To use a biblical illustration, trusting God resembles the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. Do you remember Jesus' illustration in Matthew chapter 6? He, he asks the disciples to look at the lilies of the field. They're not concerned about anything, and yet your Father clothes them. Look at the birds of the air. They're not concerned about what's going on in the world around them. They're just about their business, and yet God takes care of them. He provides for them. Completely trusting in God requires that we do not trust in our own understanding. And that's a tall order. We need grace for this task. A.W. Tozer, in his writings on faith and trust, says this, Pseudo-faith always arranges a way out to serve in case God fails it. Don't we tend to do that? We create a contingency plan just in case. I mean, I'm not saying that it's going to happen this way, but I just want to be prepared. Pseudo-faith always arranges a way out to serve in case God fails it. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. Fellow saints, we trust God with saving us from our sins. So why not trust Him with the ups and downs of this life? Why not trust in the Lord with all your heart? Think of how Jesus perfectly demonstrated these two realities of trusting in God and fearing God slash departing from evil. Think of how consumed Jesus was with being obedient to his Father. He wasn't concerned that the religious leaders hated him. He didn't create a contingency plan B. Jesus was so focused on bringing glory to his Father that he wasn't distracted by earthly attractions and desires. Brother and sister in Christ, when you are tempted to lean on your own understanding, run to Christ. Run to him. When you find it hard to trust God in a particular situation, cry out to him. Run to him. Not only does a wise person trust God, we also see in verses 9 through 12 that a wise person honors God. A wise person honors God. As wisdom is exercised, a wise person remembers God, a wise person trusts God, a wise person honors God, verses 9 through 12. Verse 9 reads, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. 
Verse 11, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. These seem kind of disjointed. I mean, one of them talks about honoring the Lord. One of them talks about his correction. These verses flow from the reality of verses 5 through 8. Think of this. If the son doesn't trust in the Lord completely or fear him, then how in the world will the son honor the Lord with his increase? How in the world will the son receive the chastening of the Lord if he's not trusting in the Lord and fearing the Lord? He won't. So as you trust in the Lord, as you fear the Lord and depart from evil, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. And notice the blessing in verse 10. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. How should we feel when God corrects us? Look in verse 11. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. Why? Verse 12. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. If we say that we trust God completely, one of the ways a wise person will evidence that they trust in the Lord with all their heart is through generosity with their possessions and increase. So question, whose honor and fame is your money enhancing? The word for honor here has the idea of glorifying someone or something. Jesus says this in Matthew 6.21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God promises that if you exercise wisdom in your generosity towards others, He will bless you. This is not some prosperity gospel of abundance. Again, where it's, I do this, I get this. He will give you more to use for the good of others. Matthew Henry writes this, God will bless you with an increase of that which is for use, not for show, for giving away, not for hoarding. As you are generous, as you honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase, as you are faithful to the Lord and you trust in Him in this tangible, exercised way, He will bless you so that you can be more generous. Solomon also helps us see how the wise person views the correction of God in their life. How does a fool view the chastening of God? He he hates it. He rejects it. He wants to get out from under it. The wise person views the correction of God in their life as a good thing. The fool wants nothing to do with God's correction because they have not embraced his wisdom. But for the wise person, there's nothing more comforting than the scalpel of correction used by God towards those he delights in. Chastening by God is an evidence of His love, not its absence. So, not only is wisdom practiced by the wise person, but secondly, we see in verses 13 through 18 that wisdom is valued. Wisdom is valued. Look with me in verses 13 through 18. Happy is the man who finds wisdom, verse 13 begins. And if you drop down to verse 18, verse 18 ends. With a, with a familiar word. Happy are all who retain her. This section is bookended by the word happy. Other places in Scripture we might find this translated blessed or joyful. 
What kind of person is this happy person or joyful person or blessed person? The blessed person is a person whose joy and happiness are so elevated that others see their state and want it. The happy person, the blessed person, is a person who is in an enviable position. We understand this. Think of how many ads on TV are geared towards your happiness. Whether it's prescriptions, restaurants, destinations, car dealers, they all involve ads with people that are doing what? Smiling, jumping, running. What do they look like? They look happy. You look at them and you think to yourself, man, I want to be like that person. I guess I should go get a new car. I guess we should go down to Burger King. I guess we should go to Cancun. The happiness of the people on TV pales compared to the happiness of the blessed person in our text. This person is not just blessed because they went someplace amazing. This person is not just blessed because they had an amazing meal or because they got an amazing car or because they took a prescription that got rid of their pain. They're happy because they find wisdom. They gain understanding. They have found the ultimate treasure. Notice how Solomon compares the worth of wisdom to some of these other treasures. The sale of silver and fine gold. It's nothing compared to the worth of wisdom. It's nothing in comparison to wisdom. Think of rubies and the value of those. In the ancient world, these were a rare jewel. You couldn't create them in a lab. They were of amazing value and worth. Well, not compared to wisdom. And I love how Solomon in verse 15 just creates this catch-all. Verse 15, and all the things you may desire. Take all of those things and add them together. Kids, take that Christmas list that, that is still unfulfilled Add the sum total of all of those things and how much they would mean to you. Wisdom is worth more than all of that. Take your Amazon wish list. Add it all up. Wisdom makes that look like pennies. Happy is the man who finds wisdom. Her proceeds, verse 14, are better. She is more precious Against the overwhelming value of wisdom, the richest and rarest treasures in the world at that time seem, frankly, underwhelming. I mean, who wants gold and silver when you could have wisdom? Rubies? I'll take wisdom. Wisdom meets and surpasses the things that we view as most valuable in this life. Friend, Is that what you believe about wisdom? Is that what you believe about wisdom? Is wisdom more valuable to you than the most richest and rarest things you could find in this life? But also notice the full benefits of wisdom in verses 16 through 18. 
Wisdom is not just of monetary value. Length of days is in her right hand. In her left hands, riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness. Who doesn't want that? All her paths are peace. Again, who doesn't want that? She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. You never want to take wisdom back and exchange it for something better. The benefits wisdom offers are complete and total. Don't we often join the world in seeking the good life? Whatever that might be, we, we want to find satisfaction. We want to find wholeness. We want to find happiness. We want to find meaning in life. God encourages us. He commands us in these verses to stop striving after the things that are ultimately empty. Instead, friend, strive after godly wisdom. Trust Him to take care of you. The currency of heaven is wisdom. How much are you investing in wisdom? How much is wisdom something that you are pursuing? But if we stop here, if, we, if I wrap up right now and we pray, we miss the message of Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3 is not merely a manifesto to do better, try harder, really beef up those New Year's resolutions for 2024. Who can follow these commands? I mean, be honest. You're going to walk out here this afternoon and, and you're going to think to yourself, man, this whole wisdom thing, I, I really need to work on that. But there's going to be holes in, in your pursuit of wisdom. Proverbs 3 points us to a wiser, greater Solomon. Jesus. Hear Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 42. He says, The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is not just Solomon revised. He is better than Solomon. Consider how Jesus exemplifies wisdom exercised in this text. We saw in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 4, that if you bind the commandments about your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart, you will find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. And we read in Luke 2.52 that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus experienced the fullness of the pursuit of godly wisdom. Jesus himself demonstrated complete trust in his Father and feared him alone, even to the point of shedding drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he prays to his Father and asks him if it's possible to have this cup removed from him, and he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was so pleasing to the Father, he never had to be chastened by the Father. As a matter of fact, when Jesus is baptized and he comes up out of the water, the Father publicly affirms, this is my Son in whom I delight, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is a better Solomon. And Proverbs 3 points us 
to Christ. In the ways that we are unable to fulfill the commands of Proverbs 3, Jesus does. Unsafe friend, you may hear Proverbs 3 this morning and think that you can obtain the realities of Proverbs 3 without the relationship with God. That you can do it on your own. You can be that person without God. Perhaps you scoff at wisdom and you entertain a better way in your own mind. I can come up with a better way. I mean, Solomon, what did he know? Did he have the internet or artificial intelligence? Friend, consider these words from 1 Corinthians 1. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. There is no other starting place to find authentic wisdom than in the person of Jesus Christ. You may seek wisdom outside of Him, and you may find what you think is wisdom, Friend, it will not satisfy. It will not give you peace or pleasantness like the real thing. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you have not trusted in Christ, to trust in the crucified and risen Christ for salvation from your sin. He offers authentic wisdom to all who come to Him in repentance and faith. In James chapter 1, he, in verse 5, James writes, If any of you lack wisdom... Let him ask of God. He does not give stingily. He does not give hesitantly. He gives generously. Friend, trust in Christ for salvation. Brothers and sisters at Christ, we are at the end of the year. Think back over 2023. How much did you invest in wisdom this past year? How much did you pursue wisdom? How much did you... Seek to grow in your exercise of godly wisdom. As we approach the eve of 2024, what will you do to seek wisdom in the new year? What are your daily priorities? Your life goals? Do they include fearing God and trusting in Him? As a Christian, your life ought to orbit around keeping those two priorities. How? through your time, through your money, through your conversations with others. Trusting in God is not a drudge or a burden. It's something that brings delight and happiness to those who trust in Him. So this morning as a church, let's resolve by God's grace to pursue wisdom, to pursue Christ, to pursue the exercise of wisdom, to pursue the value of wisdom in 2024. Why? So that we might glorify God and demonstrate to the world around us the surpassing worth of godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is worth more than anything. Let's trust in the Lord that we might exercise and pursue godly wisdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you do not leave us to figure out life for ourselves. That you help us understand how we might 
not walk as a fool, but that we might walk in your commands, that we might walk in your paths. Oh Lord, we confess that we are unable in and of ourselves to keep these commands in Proverbs 3. So we come to you this morning asking for grace, asking for for the power of the Holy Spirit to help us that we might trust in you, that we might not forget your commands, that we might fear you and depart from evil, that we might honor you with our possessions, that we might view your chastening as that of a loving father. Help us to value godly wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.